Good morning. As we get ready, get the recorders recording and everybody going. We're going to be in Luke. I've been going through 1 Corinthians. We're, we're in Luke here because I want to do something a little different for Communion Sunday, focus on the issue of atonement and the Lord setting us free and our mutual salvation and the joy that we have to fellowship with the Lord and with one another. So we're in Luke 13, and here we have an issue where a woman with a great need was in the synagogue on Shabbat. Jesus was there teaching, and the interaction, I think, will be very important for us to to learn something from. So I'll just go to verse 10 and read that, and then we'll pray and get going here. A woman needing help, Luke 10, excuse me, 13, 10 through 11. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. It was bent over and in no way, could in no way raise herself up. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask you to turn our hearts towards you, soften our hearts if they're hard, Give us a love for you and for one another. May we learn what you intend us to learn from what you've done here and what this scripture says. We ask you for wisdom and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we're in Luke, one of the things that happens in Luke, excuse me, One of the things that happens in Luke are synagogue controversies. This began real early when Jesus came into the synagogue in his hometown and he was teaching. There are cases where the synagogue leadership is upset with Jesus and we learn from these things about God's ways and God's purpose. Now in the context in Luke 13, earlier in the chapter, starting with verse 1, there there was an issue about some things that happened to a lot of people, okay? And what had happened was that uh, the question came up, who's the worst sinner? The Galileans were killed by Pilate, okay? uh, Were they worse sinners than everyone else in Galilee? Jesus said no. How about the 18 upon whom the Tower of Siloam fell? They worse culprits? No, unless you repent you will all likewise perish. So the issue that we need to have in the back of our mind as we're going into this is that the fact that some people suffer, some people have things going wrong in their lives, like this woman, or some people have already perished, doesn't help us determine who's the worst sinner. That's how humans like to think. That's how religious people like to think. But it's not the fact. And so we've already established in, earlier in Luke 13 that Jesus said, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. In other words, we need to be right with God. So we'll, we'll look at some passages about that. So here's a woman who's in horrible bondage. She has a condition uh, that she can't stand up straight. She's bent over. And 
This has been going on for 18 years. It's called a spirit of weakness in the Greek. And so here she is, and Jesus is teaching in one of the synagogues. So in the, in the Greek, behold is imperative, and it's saying, pay attention. Luke is telling us, look at this. This is what's going on, and it focuses our attention. I'm looking at that word 18. don't want to read anything into this, but it's interesting to me, and I noticed a couple of scholars noticed this as well. Earlier in Luke, the wall fell on 18, and the word 18 is a single word in the Greek. It's only used twice in the New Testament. Earlier, when the wall fell on the 18, and here it's used of the woman. Later, 18 comes up, and Luke says 10 and 8 to say the same thing. Is there a connection? Perhaps. If so, it would be this. We don't want to make false judgments about people who are already suffering. And if someone's in there in Jerusalem, the wall falls on them, they're not worse culprits, they're not worse sinners. The whole human race is sinful. So here's a woman who is in horrible condition, and we should not make false judgments. So it says literally in the Greek, she's without power. She, she's just totally unable to stand up straight. So this would cause her, obviously for 18 years going to synagogue, she would have been seen as someone of low status, someone that they wouldn't pay a whole lot of attention to other than the disability. We know from what we've seen earlier in Luke and what we know from Luke-Acts that Jesus Christ came into the world to bring freedom to people who were in bondage. Later in Acts, Luke-Acts, through volume work, Acts 10.38, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, Acts 10.38. Here is the woman so oppressed. Now let's go to verses 12 and 13. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. She was made straight and glorified God. We'll see, and I'm going to make some points about this, that if you look up the word for glorified in the Greek, it's commonly uh, spoken in Luke Acts. And what we find out is the proper response to the mighty deeds of God is to declare his glory. The thankful person glorifies God. We'll see later in an application, some didn't. We see in the Gospels, there are people who are touched by God, healed by God, some of whom don't glorify God at all. John narrates that in John chapter 5. There was a fellow sitting there 
by the pool waiting for the angel. And when Jesus heals him, he, went, he goes and turns Jesus in for working on Sabbath. Isn't it amazing how often the, uh, how often the healings happen on Sabbath? And that caused controversies. And the guy in John 5, he, he wasn't even thankful. He didn't even find out who it was. So one thing we need to think about is how we respond, how we believe, and how thankful we are. Whatever our condition, whatever we've gone through, whatever we're going through, as we're breathing the air that God's provided for us, we should be people who glorify God. We should be thankful people, grateful people. God is merciful. And when God does a mighty deed, as he does, we should glorify God. And never use that as an opportunity to portray ourselves as more pious than someone else. We'll see that as we go through here. So in Luke Acts, to glorify God for his, for his mighty deeds is a theme and it's an important thing. So earlier in Luke 4, 18, when Jesus came into Nazareth, his hometown, and taught from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, he said this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, as he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed. Luke, Luke is a magnificent writer. If I had nothing else to study, Luke Acts would keep me happy probably the rest of my life. But I, I want to study the whole counsel of God. These previews are amazing. What happens in Luke 4 is a preview of things that will happen. So there he declared release, aphasis, forgiveness, release to those in captivity, proving he's the Messiah. This idea of glorifying God goes all the way back to the beginning of Luke. In Luke 2.20, the shepherds went back glorifying, same word, and praising God for all that they'd heard and seen just had been told them. The shepherds glorified God. And we have opportunities to glorify God by believing what he said, seeing his mercy, and declaring his mighty deeds to be what they are. Another incident that leads up to this, Luke 2, glorified God. Luke 4, Released the captives. Luke 5, there's an interesting, I love this pericope, as, as we call it, a narrative section. Here comes these people with a lame person. They wanted to get to Jesus to be healed. And so they go through all this work to lower him down. This is in Luke 5. And you can see that in around verse 24. And so Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And so, why does he say that? Here's a guy, obviously paralyzed, and that's what he needs. And he says, your sins are forgiven. But the release from sins was announced in Luke 4.18. And so, what happens? Well, I'll just read it to you if you want to take note. Luke 5.24 and 25. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins He said to the paralytic, 
I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Verse 25, immediately he got up before them, picked up what he'd been laying on, and went home glorifying God. Glorifying God. The healing of the paralytic is to prove that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. And so that should be clear to us. There's a lot of talk about healings, and I've certainly been one who's been mercifully healed by God. I'm not supposed to be here. And uh, this time of the year, I've been to some doctor's appointments, but it's unbelievable what God's done. And I thank the saints for their prayers. They could still be here. Uh, God does mighty deeds. That's not to be disputed. But the issue is, are we going to glorify God? And are we going to rejoice most greatly in forgiveness of sins? And there are those who would say, oh, look at the miracles, look at the miracles. And they never say one word about forgiveness of sins. Even if there, in many cases, there's no real miracle. They're just trying to hype one up. But what's more salient is forgiveness of sins. But the man, forgiven, healed, miraculously glorified God. Now, let's see what happens here with the woman healed, delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 13, 14. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them, not on the Sabbath. Now, Luke writes this, it's amazing. It should be stunning, frankly. Think about this. So you go to synagogue. The woman is in his condition, horrible debilitating condition for 18 years. They'd heard about Jesus. This is not a big metropolitan area there. They knew that Jesus had healed people. And here's a person finally released, unloosed, literally, unloosed, and they're thinking, okay, we got a problem here, Sabbath. So we'll see a confrontation about that and some discussion about priorities. But there's a word here in the Greek translated atu, day, which often in Luke Acts means divine necessity, but here, the synagogue ruler is using that word atu within the range of meaning, but differently. He says, it's your duty, okay? It's your moral duty to do your work on the six days. Day, atu. I have that on the slide. Why isn't he rejoicing? Well, he's in charge. He's a, literally, the, there's a prefix, R.K., Synagogue ruler, I'm in charge here. I'd rather have decorum than to see this woman released. We want everything to be done properly. 
And so his religious status is threatened. I think that's what really is going on, and we'll see that in other texts. Whenever you have institutionalized religion of any sort, there becomes a hierarchy, and the people who have status and honor and power are motivated to hang on to the status, the honor, the power, no matter what. And anything that threatens that has to be punished. And so you see that, whether it's in just civil affairs or certainly in religious ones. And the true Messiah, God incarnate, God the Son, the Creator, coming into the world, born of a virgin, and the things that he did and said, proving who he is. The Son of Man, by the way, is a reference from Daniel 7, the Messiah, was a threat to the people that had authority and power. A normal, ordinary human being, though fallen, still has a conscience. And a normal, ordinary human being, being together with someone in that kind of state, seeing the release, being unloosed, freed, would rejoice, but he did not. It says, he, he said this with answer, by the way, implies in a debate style in the Greek, but indignation. So what threat was this to the synagogue ruler? Well, I'm in charge here. That's what it all boils down to. So there's a summary. Jesus said, you have been loosed. Loosed. Luo in the Greek, or apoluo, loosed from. And that's the title I, I gave to the sermon, Loosed. The healed lady gave glory to God. The synagogue ruler answers with indignation, not on Shabbat. This won't happen on my watch. No way is someone going to be loose. We got other days. So you see the debate or the challenge. Now let's go to verse 15. The Lord then answered him and said, hypocrite. A hypocrite is an actor who acts to be seen, to be playing a role, to gain honor from a person, other people. Hypocrite. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? Now, I mentioned something here about typical housing arrangement. And so I, the title uh, I gave the slide, Loose the Ox But Not the Woman. There's the irony. It comes out in the Greek, luo, or apoluo, and then the bind is deo. Kenneth E. Bailey wrote a marvelous book. I know some of you have it, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And in Bailey's book... He talks about the layout of peasant homes in the Middle East, and I'll, I'll cite some of that. And what you find out here, and he mentions that even about Jesus born in a manger, I highly recommend Bailey's work, um, was that the ox would 
would probably be part, a lower part of the very home itself because the winter would provide heat and so on. Let me cite Bailey on this. Kenneth E. Bailey from Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, talking about the layout of a home. The main room was a family room where the entire family cooked, ate, slept, and lived. The end of the room next to the door was either a few feet lower than the rest of the floor or blocked off with heavy timbers. Each night, into that designated area, Bailey says, the family cow, donkey, and a few sheep would be driven. And every morning, those same animals were taken out and tied up in the courtyard of the house. The animal stall would then be cleaned for the day. Such simple homes he says, can be traced from the time of David up to the middle of the 20th century. And this layout would explain a lot of things that happened, including what happened at the birth of Jesus, Kenthy Bailey. So he had, I noticed as I looked at his index, he had something about this incident in Luke 13. Let me cite that. Bailey says, another example of the same assumption appears in Luke 13, 10 through 17, where on the Sabbath, Jesus healed a woman who was bent over, could not fully straighten herself. Jesus called to her and said, Woman, you are freed, literally untied, from your infirmity. The head of the synagogue was angry because Jesus had worked on the Sabbath. Jesus responded, and then he says, You hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or ass, from the manger, lead away to water it. Bailey says his point being, today on the Sabbath, you untied an animal. I untied a woman. How can you blame me? This is everything they would have taken, untied, brought the animal out. They all did that. And he would have done it too. The synagogue leader did it. He untied the animal, but then accuses G on Sabbath, accuses Jesus of unloosing a woman from bondage to Satan. I want to make a point right here. We live in a time in our culture, in our world, where the value of human beings is being uh, questioned and degraded by the culture. And there are literally people who believe that humans have no special status vis-a-vis animals. And it's interesting, if you really thought that way, this whole thing wouldn't make sense. But it makes a lot of sense, and it's powerful, because we know from the Bible that human beings are created in the image of God. That human life is important, and that capital punishment for murder was prescribed in the Old Testament because of the value of human life. So this should have a powerful impact, and we can't let the culture tell us how we think. We have to let the Bible do that. So what's more important to unloose, the donkey or the woman? The Bible says the woman. Now, there's a lesser to greater argument here. 
Let's go to verse 16. Here's the implication. So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, think of it for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. Now again, I put this in the notes here, ought is day, same word. And in Luke Acts, most often it's the divine necessity. Here again, the same word, ought. Before it meant ought by moral duty. Here it means ought by God's divine purpose to bring healing through Messiah, to release captives by Messiah, to set those who are in bondage free, as it says throughout Luke Acts. So it's intensified now to be the divine necessity, not just daily chores that we should do. What's more important, the daily chore? Okay, get the ox out of the that part of the house, the lower. Bailey has uh, drawings, by the way, in his books where you can see that layout. Get the ox out, get it all cleaned up, go to the synagogue, and here Jesus unlooses a woman from bondage. So the ox is loose due to daily chores, a woman loose due to God's divine, merciful purposes in Christ. And so here it says 18 is not, it says 8 and 10. So that's why in my mind I'm going back to the 18 earlier that the wall fell on, the tower fell on. I wonder if just organ, just, it's not wrong to be organized. How should I say this? Religion that sets up orders and powers and authorities and prescriptions, do this and don't do that. And you have the, the higher the uh, hierarchy goes, the more hypocrisy exists, the more opportunities for bad motives, the more opportunities to abuse people, the more opportunities to be angry when an ordinary person finds forgiveness of sins. Many people that I've known over the last 50 years have witnessed in large denominational groups with their hierarchies, when people find release, they find forgiveness, they find hope, they're born of the Spirit, have been told by the authorities, we think maybe you should just go somewhere else. We don't tolerate that sort of thing around here. Release from sin. We got one more slide in this section, and then I'm going to show another one similar. Luke 13, 17. When he had said these things, all his adversaries were being put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. 
Look at, the, look at this. The, the terminology is just magnificent here that, that Luke uses. If you look all the way from the very beginning of Luke, the shepherds, the things that happened, glory, the angels, glory to God in the highest, the mighty deeds of God, glorifying God, and they lived in an honor-shame culture. Bailey has pointed that out. And the one thing you wanted to avoid was being shamed, and the one thing you wanted to gain was honor. And so here, the one who would be seen as shameful through no fault of her own, but in the state she was in, not having status, is freed and glorifies God, the adversaries, the people with authority and status and honor and power are put to shame. There's a reversal. There's a theme of reversal. Now, this isn't a political reversal. This is a powerful reversal by the saving power of God through the Holy Spirit, through Messianic salvation, loosed and set free. And the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. And when the multitude rejoiced, the ordinary people find hope and joy and come to Jesus, the more the religious leaders are angry, the more hostile they are. Because they don't like being shamed, and they don't like the fact that their hypocrisy was put on display. So we have public joy for the crowd, public shame for the religious authorities. Now, this is a thematic thing throughout the Bible. Some of the same terminology, by the way, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is found in Exodus. And God did mighty deeds. To glorify God in the Bible is to declare who he is, the great glorious things that are true about God, praise him for his mighty deeds, and rejoice in his salvation for those who have it by his grace. Exodus 34, 10, then God said, Behold, I'm going to make a covenant before all your people. I will perform miracles which have not been produced in the earth nor among any of the nations and all the people among whom you will see the working of the Lord, of Yahweh. For it is a fearful thing I'm about to perform for you, glorious deeds done by God. Now, I have some applications that are based on another section. Someone asked, what's the difference between implication and application? Well, implication is logically connected to the text. And so if it says, thou shalt not steal, it's an implication that somebody had something I want, I took it, and I did this with it. That's, in fact, stealing is wrong. It falls under that. It's a logical connection to what God said. An application would be something that is a principle in Scripture that we need to take to heart to make sure we practically are able to live out by God's grace what we've learned from the text. And so what we've done 
is use Scripture to compare to Scripture so that what God says sinks into our hearts, reminds us of who he is, gives us hope that he can change us and give us opportunity to glorify him, to declare his mighty deeds. And that's why we say implications and applications. Number one, we must not allow tradition and institutional prestige to cause us to oppose God's provision of true freedom in Christ. Wow. Religion always, when it creates this man-made system that grants status, money, honor to people who make the institution powerful, make the institution bigger, but will punish ordinary people finding something like the gospel. Freedom, life in Christ, hope in him. That's just the way it works. Number two, the presence of messianic salvation should cause us to glorify God with grateful hearts. Glorify God with grateful hearts. You ever wonder why, before we get to some more text, why do big Christianized religious groups, however big and powerful they may be, keep coming up with more rules for the ordinary people to follow and more hoops to jump through? It's endless. It's endless. We, we just came up with Sunday school. Did you know there's no such thing as Lent? Did you know that? It's not anywhere in the Bible. So why do people feel like, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. Maybe God will be happy with me. Why does it get like that? Why do we have more traditions, more uh, things to do? Do this, try that, say this, go here, give up that. Try more, work harder. Religious institutions love to create all of that. And it's nowhere in the Bible because Jesus came to bring release, not more bondage. So I'm going to eat chocolate. <laughs> Unless it bothers my stomach. Now, people will say, well, you can't see that. Look at all the millions and billions of people. The, that's not the point. The point is God has spoken. Do we believe what he said? Let's look at another instance. One of the things that's interesting about Luke Acts is there are couplets, a woman, a man, a man, a woman. Even in the, the pronouncements when the Holy Spirit came upon people early in, in Luke, some women spoke forth the mighty deeds of God and then men. That's how God shows this for us. And so here a woman was healed, earlier a man was. So let's go to that one, Luke 6, 5 through 7. Another incident of Sabbath. This one is, by the way, introduced with a claim by Jesus himself. This is a little earlier. Luke 6, 5 through 7. And he was saying to them, quote, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Son of Man is Messiah, as described in Daniel 7. What does that imply? What's the implication Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath? 
He's the one who determines what Sabbath is all about. What set off that issue? And we'll see another one here. Well, the, you see what's going on in Luke 6. The disciples are going through a grain field, grabbed some grain. They were rubbing it together in their hands, blowing away the shaft. Then you got pure grain. You can eat it. If you've ever been on a, whether it's wheat or oats or whatever, you get the shaft. So you got grain. They did that on Shabbat. They said, no, you can't do that. You're working. Rebuke your disciples. There's an irony here. It's going to be a man who doesn't have a right hand that could even do that. And uh, we'll see what happens. So he claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Same setting. Well, this one was before. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. Luke tells us the detail of the right hand, meaning most people right-handed, be very debilitating. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him. And again, looking in the Greek, observing closely. They were waiting for another chance to get him. They were watching him closely to see if he healed on Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. So Luke tells us what their motives are. They don't care about the man with the withered hand. They don't care about the woman who was later bound and uh, who needed to be loosed. They wanted to maintain their power to make the rules. We tell you what to do, you do it, or we'll kick you out. That's the power that they want to have. And so they're watching for the opportunity, observing closely. We're going to catch him in some wrongdoing, and that'll be our chance. <clears throat> that same word for watch is used in Luke 20.20, 20, if you want to jot this down, Luke 20.20. 20. So they watched him in Luke 20.20 20, and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and authority of the governor. We're going to catch this guy. They pretend to be righteous. We're the righteous ones. We're the lawgivers. We know what should happen. We're going to get him. And when you think about it, that it's the very creator of the universe, God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the Holy One, the Promised One, the Sinless One, that they can't even tolerate seeing him cure people, forgive people, and demonstrate mercy and release and unloosing people in bondage, and they're going to get him. May God save us from this honor system where we have to be somebody important so that everybody else thinks we're great and cowers when we start making laws. I hope you know there's no ministry in the New Testament called lawgiver. But boy, a lot of people volunteer for it. Let's go to the next slide, Luke 6, 8 and 9. 
But he knew what they were thinking. By the way, God knows the heart. Jesus is God. Jesus knows the heart. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he got up and came forward. And Jesus said to them, so he asked this question, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath to save a life or destroy it? So before anything said, he puts it right in their laps. Is it lawful to do good on Sabbath? What are they going to answer? They, they're in trouble, so we'll find out how that goes. Verse 10 and 11. And after looking around at them all, they don't answer. They know they're wrong, but they don't care. Why do people who know they're wrong, but they have power, and they make everybody jump through their hoops, why do they just sit there and not answer? Because in their minds, my power over you is more important than anything else. So even if I'm shamefully wrong, obviously wrong, and caught in my wickedness, I'll just sit here and write it out, and I'll keep my power. But you know what? They're taking something uh, that's very important and removing it from their thoughts, which is, in the end, God is the judge. And we are all are facing the judge. And he knows even the thoughts and intents of the heart. And every one of us, if put under the scrutiny of the omniscient judge of the universe, will be found wanting. Every one of us is as hearted as any Pharisee or synagogue ruler or authority, but by the grace of God. This Jesus who I'm telling you about, who came into our world, God the Son, who lived a sinless life and who did these things that we're reading about, he died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. He appeared to many witnesses after his bodily resurrection, having shed his blood for sins, sent it to heaven. He's coming to bring judgment. All of those, what we need is the grace of God to see we're just as needy as anybody described in the Bible. And we need to turn to him, believe on him, trust in him, repent and believe the gospel and be forgiven. That's the gospel today. Believe on the Lord Jesus. He says, stretch out your hand. And his hand was restored. Notice what it says. His hand was restored. Does it say they themselves were glorifying God for his mighty deeds? No, it doesn't say that, does it? Why wouldn't they? They knew this guy. They know what kind of trouble that would cause. The horrible disability, they were filled with rage. How dare you do a mighty deed and not ask us for permission? But he did. He said, well, is it lawful or not? They wouldn't answer. They themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. We need to get rid of this guy because he's making us look bad. Isn't that the wickedness of fallen sinful man. The, uh, honestly, some of the greatest obstacles to the gospel have been put up by Christendom 
in the name of Christ. We need to flee to Christ and not allow religious authorities to tell us, you can't even have forgiveness of sins unless you do what we tell you to do, and then you don't get it anyhow. you got to wait for some other things to happen. So they had this rage, anoia, uh, from the word noose, mine, with an alpha privative meaning madness, folly, irrational anger that will spill over. Rage. The same word is used in 2 Timothy 3, verse 9. Let me read that. 2 Timothy 3, 9, it's about the evils of the last days. But they will not get very far for their folly, annoya, mad rage, will be plain to all, as was that of those two men, two people from history that opposed Moses. So evil teachers and wicked men of the last days are called haters of good. It's very shocking for us, by the way, not just in church-type things, but it's shocking to look around us and see how blatantly evil is called good and good is called evil. So these passages that we're reading show that this isn't, hasn't changed. It was true all the way back in Jesus' day. Any neutral observer, observer would say, it's good that the woman was released. It's good that the man was healed. It's good that the person's sins are forgiven, and then he was healed. But this rage against the truth has a demonic and satanic source because all things opposed to God come from the fall, from fallen sinners who don't love the things of God. One more passage, and that is the ten lepers who were cleansed. I just have one verse here. Luke 17, well, three verses, but one slide, excuse me. Twelve slides fit really nicely on a page. You notice that? So I'll tell you the context of it. In fact, why don't you turn here. Turn to Luke 17, and we'll start with verse 11. If you want to turn in your Bibles, Luke 17, starting verse 11. There's a lesson for all of us to be thankful. Leprosy is like a type of sin. If your sins are forgiven, you've been cleansed. There's a reason to be thankful. That's what we're doing with the Lord's Supper. Luke 17, I'll start with verse 11. And he was on his way to Jerusalem, by the way, Luke 9, 51, all the way up to when he gets there is the travel narrative. He was on his way up, up to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men stood at a distance and met him. By the way, if you're a leper, you had to cry out so that they didn't get close to you, become defiled. Akathartos, akathartos, unclean, unclean, stay at a distance. I'm unclean, don't go near me. He stood at a distance and met him. And they raised their voice saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. That's a good sinner's prayer. Have mercy on me. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priests. As they were going, they were cleansed. 
Now we get to verse 15. Now one of them, when he saw that he'd been healed, leprosy's gone, turned back, glorifying God. By now you're reading Luke, glorifying God. That's good. Turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell at his feet, face at his feet. Now he's cleansing. He can get closer. Falls at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. The perpetual enemies of Israel. Unclean by just being Samaritan. He was a Samaritan. Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Where are they? Oh, great. Now we don't have a problem. One of them fell at Jesus' feet. (laughs) Wow. We need to have a heart for forgiveness, for God saving people who obviously have nothing going for us or them, and a heart of gratitude to glorify God for his mighty deeds. The Samaritan did that. Let me read verses 18 and 19. Was no one found who returned to give Glory to God, except this foreigner. And he said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. He's commended for his faith. Let's think about that. I chose this section as the ending of this because of we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is glorifying God for his mighty deeds. We're thankful that God allowed us to dine with the king, wicked sinners that we were and still are in some ways, but we're forgiven and perfection awaits at the later, the resurrection and the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're remembering what God did. So I'll pray and we'll uh, then have the words of institution to think about the Lord's Supper. Dear Lord, thank you for these people that we read about in your word that were cleansed and healed and gave glory to you. May we not be the hard-hearted who won't tolerate what you're doing because we want authority. May that not be the case. May we all humble ourselves, remind ourselves what you've done for us. And Lord, maybe even today some New ones will come to faith in you. We thank you for what you've provided. We do give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.